are, whoops, working our way through the genealogy of Jesus from Matthew chapter 1. And we're burning rubber. We made it all the way down to verse 6. <clears throat> now we're going to go to verse 7. Huh? <laughs> Why not? <clears throat> so, we looked at all this all the way down. Uh, four women that are mentioned in the genealogy, important ladies. Uh, we got down to David and the father of Solomon, verse 6, <clears throat> whose mother had been Uriah's wife, and then Solomon's the father of Rehoboam. I don't know who his mother was. I was going to look it up, but maybe tomorrow. Anyway, just for sake of chronology, Saul was made king in about 1050. Now, chronology is almost important, impossible to define back when you're talking about 3,000 years ago and records have been destroyed, obviously, when uh, history, the way things go in wars and stuff. But let's say 1050, he ruled 40 years, and then uh, uh, David was the second king, 40 years. He's about 1,000. We just put David around 1,000, and we put Solomon about 950 B.C. That gives us a kind of an idea of where we are historically, before Christ. <clears throat> okay? Now, David was the second king of the United Kingdom of the Hebrew people. In those days, they spoke Hebrew. Okay? It's important. He's the ancestor of Jesus Christ, as we see, and he's also written a lot of psalms. Now, <clears throat> when we went back and looked through some of this, we realized that the genealogy of Jesus is an absolute mess, okay? Which is comforting to know. Nobody's perfect, right? Anybody perfect? Not that I know of. So last week we looked at how David became the father of Solomon through Uriah's wife. And just by way of recap, in case you weren't here, the army went out to do spring cleaning. David stayed home. He arranged to have an adulterous affair with Bathsheba. And Uriah's wife, well, he was away honorably in battle. And unfortunately, Bathsheba became pregnant. Oops. Recreation becomes procreation. <laughs> then in an effort to cover it up, uh, David arranged to have Uriah killed in battle. And then he was later confronted by the prophet Nathan over this egregious and hideous crime. And Nathan came to him and said, David, you, you're the man. Thank God somebody's going to speak into his life, right? So this is an extremely important lesson for us to learn as we're going through this genealogy, sin has ramifications, all right? Yesterday, today, forever, all right? So if we're going to learn anything at all about how God works, sin doesn't make God happy, okay? So this is what the Lord God of Israel says. He says, you've despised the commandment of the Lord, which is the word of God, you killed Uriah, you took his wife, killed him with the sword of the uh, Ammonite people. Now, therefore, in verse 10, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me, and the list is long, taken wife the wife of Uriah, to be your own wife. So not only did he do all that, but he ends up marrying her. Now, you don't want this to be your obituary. Are you with me? You don't want this to be the story of your life. You want to avoid this kind of thing from happening. So here's what I want you to see. The sword shall never depart from your house. How long is never? Okay, we looked at this last week. This is a recap. Is the sword a good thing? No. Sword is not a good thing. What you want is blessing, right? You want your family to be blessed. You want your house to be blessed. You want your nation to be blessed. How do you do that? By obeying God, all right? God knows the best for us. God has the best plan for us. 
It's thousands and thousands of examples over thousands and thousands of years that disobedience to God leads to death and misery and calamity and negative consequences. All right? So <clears throat> the house of David will be negatively impacted forever. So David's decision to sin sexually will affect his family and the future of Israel. Okay, we want to see that. We understand how impactful this was. So David uh, took responsibility for his sin. Aren't you glad for that? Because Saul did not. If you go back and read, when Saul was confronted about his sin, he continually refused to acknowledge it. So the difference between King 1 and King 2 is that David was taking responsibility for his sin. Now, there were ramifications to the the sin, even though his sin was forgiven. Uh, he said, create me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Is the Holy Spirit present in the Old Testament? Absolutely. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. You can't put a price tag on that joy. You can't manufacture that joy. That joy comes from being in a right relationship with God. That's the best joy ever. That's what makes life really work. So some of the things that happened in David's life as a result of that sin was his first child born to Bathsheba dies. We looked at this last week. Uh, David's daughter is raped by her half-brother. Uh, he's murdered. Absalom rebels against David, sleeps with all his concubines. He attempts to dethrone David, and, of course, he's killed in a war with his own father over the throne. David wanted to build a temple, but he's not allowed to. And more importantly than that, the unified kingdom is going to begin to slowly unravel. So this sin of David's uh, marked an ever-increasing dysfunction in his family and also led eventually to the dissolution of the kingdom. So even though his sins are forgiven, thank God for that, right? There's still all ramifications and decisions that you make. And some of them are not good. So now, repenting is better than not repenting. All right? Going to God and being sorry for your sin is better than not repenting at all, no matter what it is you've done. Okay? He got God's forgiveness, which is good. And what you want to do is to live in such a way that you don't need to repent. Right? Check it out. Proverbs 21.3. Yeah. One of the Proverbs of Solomon. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Right? Do the right thing, you won't need to repent of sin. Do the right thing, you won't have to bear the burden of disobedience to God. Okay? There's a way which seems right to a man. The end is death. Okay? It's not life. How long does it take us to learn that fact? How many thousands and thousands of years? How much destruction and dysfunction do we need to see that disobedience to God does not lead to life? Obedience is better than sacrifice. Amen. Rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft. It's as bad as worshiping idols. Now, fortunately for us, the Bible doesn't gloss over the, the sins of God's people. And the scripture is giving to us to show the reality of your decisions. We can learn from things. We can learn from a good example, and we can learn from a bad example. What we see is that sin fragments your life. It impacts your family, and it impacts your future negatively. Now, at the end of his life, when they're wrapping it all up, David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He hadn't failed to keep any of the Lord's commandments all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite, which is a big exception, isn't it? Could you imagine if he just didn't do that? You know, what a great story he'd be writing, what a legacy he'd leave behind, you know, what a different future there would be because the sword would not now be embedded in his family, you know, forever. David and Uriah incidents, a good example of a bad example. <clears throat> now, we also get to see the mercy of God. Aren't you glad about that? This mercy of God 
comes through repentance. That's the only way to get it. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't perform certain rituals or acts. You can't do journeys. You can't contort yourself into some box or whatever it is, throw images into rivers and burn things. The only way that you can access the forgiveness of God is through repentance. One that makes it simple. There's no confusion. There is a way to receive uh, forgiveness of God, and that's through repentance. Aren't you glad about that? There is a method. There is a way. Jesus has provided that way for us, but that's how you do it. You can't create your own pathway. You can't create your own way to receive forgiveness. you got to do it God's way if you want it at all, and that's the prayer you want to pray. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. That's the prayer that will unlock the mercy of God. Are you with me? He says, God, you have to do it in me. I can't do it. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. David kept coming back to God, didn't he? He believed that God would forgive his sin. So what's the value of being king and having tons of money if you're not going to go to heaven? <laughs> now, in this dysfunction, Solomon was born. David's going to die just like everybody else. You know, as far as we know, we're all going to die, right? Rested with his fathers. David reigned 40 years. He had uh, seven years in Hebron and then 30, 33 years. And then Solomon sat on the throne of his father David. Kingdom was established. David was about 71 years old, reigned for 40 years. And he was king over all of Israel, what they call the United Kingdom of the 12 tribes. So in this aftermath of Uriah's death and his life and <clears throat> God's redeeming this unredeemable situation, uh, Solomon, who's the second child of Bathsheba, becomes king. And he's, he's known as one of the wisest men of all times. Solomon uh, was known, uh, he was the, the goat, right, of all wisdom. But he also went from goat to goof the greatest of obstinate fools, the rise and fall of Solomon. Solomon makes a great start. He ends miserably. Solomon is actually one of the greatest disappointments in Old Testament history, unfortunately. So what can we learn from this rise and fall of Solomon? Now, first of all, <clears throat> he had every advantage. He had every opportunity to make a positive impact on the future of the people of Israel and the future of the world. But he failed that opportunity. All right? We are alive now, and God has given us opportunities to be a blessing in our generation. We cannot fail that opportunity. My prayer, our prayer should be, Lord, keep us in your pathway. Let us maintain our integrity as we follow you honestly before the Lord. What do you say? But he failed his opportunity and personally brought about the split of the kingdom that impacted the future of the Jewish nation forever. So he had a great beginning. Succeeded his father. Uh, he was probably around 20 years old or so, a young man, when he was crowned, assumed the leadership, expanded the kingdom, built the temple. <clears throat> uh, he wasn't like David, who was anointed as a kid and went to battles and wars to become king. He's the first one to actually inherit uh, the kingship. He didn't like, he wasn't actually supposed to be king. His brother was supposed to be king and actually announced himself to be king. But David had made an oath to Bathsheba that Solomon would sit, with, sit on the throne. So that's what happened. Now, he's got a great start. One of the, one of the things that he does is worship God. Worship is very important, isn't it? Showed his love for the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father. Uh, he offered sacrifice in the high place. He went and offered sacrifices, burnt a thousand, thousand burnt offerings. 
So he showed that he loved God by being obedient to God, right? What did Jesus say? If you love me, what? Obey me, right? You can't say you love God and don't obey God, right? You don't love God if you don't obey God. So he showed that he loved God walking in the, the ways of the Lord. And this is awesome. Here's a young guy. He's 20-ish. He's uh, given himself to God. He's worshiping God as a young man. Uh, he's not kicking back, hoping that no one notices that he's going to church. He's out there, public display of his faith. Everyone can see how much he loves God. And he's not ashamed to love God openly or let people know. <clears throat> so God comes to him <clears throat> after this worship service and said, ask whatever you want me to give you. Ask for whatever, whatsoever. Appeared to him in a dream. Asked him this very important question. Wow, can you imagine if God appeared to you and said, I'm going to give you whatever you want, whatever you ask for. Now think of that. God will give him whatsoever. Now, that's kind of a dangerous question, right? Ask whatever you want. So can you imagine God who's all-powerful, creator of heaven and earth, who makes universes like, you know, they're sparklers, says, I'm going to give you whatever you want. Now, if you had one wish, God came to you and said, I'm going to give you whatever you want, what would that be? What would that look like? Now, the first thing that springs to mind is money, right? Lots of lots of money. I mean, how many of you prayed to win the lottery? Huh? Don't raise your hand. You heard about the guy that won the lottery? He went home and told his wife, honey, what would you do if I won the lottery? She said, I'd take half and leave you. He said, okay, here's $12.50. <laughs> I was thinking about this question, and I thought, I, I, I would, who doesn't want money? Don't you work every day for money? Right? Who goes to work and doesn't want money? Don't you want a pay raise? Clarence, don't you want a pay raise? Maybe I can arrange it for you. <laughs> yeah. Don't talk to your boss about that. I'm going to pay off bills, take care of my kids, buy them houses, go to school, get a PhD in historical theology, give money to the poor, give money to missions, give money to water wells, make scholarships, build churches. Uh, there would be a lot of things you could do with money, right? I could also buy a bunch of houses and have boats all over the world, and I'd buy Big Bear Lake. It'd be my own trout farm. I'd buy Yosemite, and I'd buy the Awani Hotel and live in it as my personal residence. Of course, I'd have Bible studies there and things like that, you know? Yeah, you know, I'd do that. A lot of good things you can do with money. Not a problem, right? But the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. All right, so when I was in Bible college in the late 1900s, I had a guy who said, God told me I'm going to be a millionaire. Now, back in the 1900s, a million was a lot of money. So when you said, I'm going to be a millionaire, you go, wow, that's a lot of money. <clears throat> God called me to be a millionaire. Wow. A million dollars. Remember when a million dollars was a lot of money? Yeah. Now, I just came by a house for a million dollars. So what would this guy's prayer life look like? Right? <laughs> she wants a million bucks. So then I reconsidered, and I said, probably if I could pray for one thing, it would look more like Paul's desire. At the end of the day, my heart's desire, he says, is for his people that they could be saved. And I would wish that endless souls would be saved, and I would prefer that all my family be saved and all my neighbors and everybody in the world. If I could have one wish that would change the world, that would be it. So what we want to realize is, what didn't Solomon ask for? Okay, We'll look at what he did ask for, but what he didn't ask for. First of all, he didn't treat God like a genie, like in a bottle. 
You know, hey, God, my name is Jimmy. I'll take all you give me. <laughs> Sometimes we think of God as a genie. God, do this for me. God, do that for me. Be a good God. Be a good almighty God and do what I want. You know, jump through hoops. You, you're so mighty, you can do it. Sometimes we try to guilt God, you know, and get him to do things by telling him how great he is and that we know he can do all this stuff. Like he's got to do it because we use the word mighty, you know, jump, God. When I, when I say jump, almighty, just do that, whatever I want. Now, you do things as a parent for your four-year-old that they ask you to do, right? Sometimes your kids come to you, ask you for things. Sure, I'll do that for you. But you don't do everything they ask, do you? No way. <laughs> no way. So we are like little children before God, are we not? So what did he ask for? Okay? First Kings 3, 9, 10. He said, give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. The Lord was pleased that Solomon asked for this. Now he starts out by saying, give what? Your servant. Notice his attitude. You made me king, but I realize that even as king, I am your servant. Are you with me? doesn't matter where you are in this hierarchy. We are servants of God, are we not? As a husband, maybe a political position, maybe in your business, it doesn't matter. What, whatever position you find yourself in in life, in the social strata, you are a servant of God, okay? So he understands that right at the beginning. He has a servant's heart at the beginning of his, of his ministry as ruler. He's not going to rule as a tyrant or as a maniac. He's going to rule as a servant. He wants God's wisdom to be able to govern his people. Give your servant an understanding mind, discerning mind for good and evil so I can govern properly. Now, where have you heard that before? Servanthood is the Christian model, right? Servanthood is always the model. Old Testament or New Testament. And it's a good starting point. Give me wisdom, he says in the parallel passage, so I can come in and go out among these people. Now, God was pleased with this because Solomon did not ask for riches, long life, or revenge. It was not a God wants me rich prayer, was it? No. It wasn't like God has called me to be rich. Now, again, money's a good thing. Use it properly, right? Make a lot of it. Use it a lot, right? Why not? Make as much as you can. Give as much as you can. Do as much as you can. If God has blessed you to have a ton of money, invest it in the kingdom of God. Make good things happen with it, all right? Don't store it up in barns and think it's all about you, and then at the end of the day, God goes, I'm sorry. <laughs> Tonight, you're going to die. What a fool. All your barns, you're going to leave behind to somebody else who didn't work for them. Now, our culture fails in this because we're driven for riches, long life, and revenge, at least revenge disguised as justice, right? We're call fire down. Consume them. Do we live in a hedonistic society? Are we a selfish culture? Are we self-centered, self-gratifying? This materialistic philosophy makes its way into the church, and pretty soon a church is not a place to serve anymore. It's a place to be served. The church is no longer a place to give. It's a place to get. It's a consumer Christianity that we have, and it's like, we're not servants anymore. We're kings. So what can you do for me? I'm the king. Yet we have too many kings and not enough servants, right? What we want to do is put them together. <clears throat> what do you get when you put together the servant and the king? You get the son of David. 
I mean, if all you want to do is make yourself happy, just go to a bar. You can do that every night, right? At least temporarily until you wake up the next day in a drunken stupor. We serve God because it's right to serve God, right? Whether there's a reward at the end of the, at the rainbow or not, whether God heals me or not, whether God blesses me financially or not, whether things go well for me or not, it's the right thing to serve God. That's why in the history of Christianity, Christians are willing to go to the death rather than to repudiate their faith because faith is more important to them than anything in the world. Getting to heaven is the most important thing. Even if you never got a pat on the back, right, or had someone notice your great sacrifices for God, It's the right thing to serve God. Okay? Who cares? Whether or not people notice. We always want to keep the cross close to us, do we not? If you want to come after me, deny yourself, pick up your cross. That's what Christianity is about. And Solomon asked for a servant's heart to judge the people of Israel and his ability to tell good from evil, be able to do the right thing and make righteous judgment. And God granted his request if he would walk in the steps of his father, David. Do I have that? So God says, look it. I'm going to give you what you haven't asked for. And that's all the things, right? Money, blah, blah, blah. But he says, if you. Now, if is the biggest word in the Bible, (laughs) as we heard today, right? So I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to give you whatever you want. I'm going to give you wisdom, money, wealth. If you walk in my ways and obey my statutes, I'll give you a long life. And he woke up and realized it was a dream, and he went on to worship God. If he had walked in his steps, how big is that if? That is as big as the Grand Canyon. Big around the middle. Brought across the room. Solomon didn't ask for the shallow desires of materialism. The accumulation of wealth was not the focus of his life. He wanted wisdom. He wanted knowledge, understanding. He asked for virtue. And God says, okay, I'll give you both. I'll give you whatever, whatever you need. So he was considered to be <clears throat> the wisest. In all the earth. People came to hear him speak. Greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. That must have been great, I guess. I mean, we look at the uh, pyramids and go, wow, those are marvelous, right? How they did that. Maybe extraterrestrials came down. (laughs) Anyway. Pretty smart. Wiser than any other man. All these guys. Big shots. Fame spread. To the nations. He wrote 3,000 Proverbs, songs, numbered 1,005, a lot of stuff. Plant life, trees, animals, birds, reptiles, kings from all over the world sent people as representatives to listen to him. He's called the wisest man in the world. He made Israel a great nation, provided for the army. He built the temple built cities, opened up trade routes, so much gold that uh, silver didn't amount to anything. No one even wanted silver. There was so much gold. And one of his first things to do as a builder was to construct this awesome temple as a place of worship of God of Israel. And inside it, he says, the inner chamber was overlaid with pure gold, everything in it. Sanctuary overlaid with gold. Isn't that amazing? Look at this thing. Mount Zion. So now let's look at the fall of Solomon. Now for 20 years, things went pretty well for Solomon. However, in the process of becoming a scholar, 
he forgot that God actually called him to be a servant. Okay? In, in his life's pro, uh, process, you can even read in Ecclesiastes, he just goes, man, I, I've tried everything, and I, I've done everything, and everything's just vanity, right? That's where you end up with when you put your trust in material things to satisfy you. It, it leaves you empty. Here's a guy who goes, I've tried all the sin I could do. I've tried all the wise wisdom I could do. I did all the money. I did all this building. And it's just like, oh, it's all just meaningless, emptiness. It's a wise thing to say, but he needs to come back to God, doesn't he? So he lost sight of the humble relationship he had with God at the beginning of his reign, and we never want to let that happen. He, God called him to be a servant and a prayer warrior. He violated all of his own proverbs, which says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. We have a classic example how Proverbs and wisdom can be in the book, but if it doesn't get in your heart, it doesn't do you any good, right? If God shows you what to do in terms of uh, following him, you don't do it, that's up to you, right? It's a big if. So when did Solomon stop praying for wisdom to discern good and evil? When, when did that happen? It was a slow erosion in his life. If we look in uh, 1 Kings 11, Solomon loved many foreign women. He was married to Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites. Okay? They were from the nations which the Lord, the Lord told them not to intermarry with them. Why did God tell them not to intermarry with them? It's because they'll turn your heart away to their false gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love, unfortunately. That's a lot of DNA spread around. <clears throat> he had 700 wives of royal birth. Now, these are princesses, royal alliances he's made with other kings, kingdoms. 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. His, when he grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord God as King David. Followed after means to depart, to move away, to walk, to proceed. So he's no longer following God. He's got this huge kingdom that he's trying to keep organized. Can you imagine having 700 wives to deal with? Imagine going shopping for seven, with 700 wives. <laughs> shopping for 700 wives. Think how much cosmetics you got to buy every month. Cost you a fortune. He followed Ashtoreth, the god of the Estonians, and Molech. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. What do you say? Does God call it evil? Does God condone that? Is God happy with that? No. Even on the hill, Solomon built a place for Chemosh and Molech. And he did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. And there's so much art out there and stories and literature about this. It's unending on the internet right now. So I got one of these little pictures. I go, this one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There's eight right there. So, But he needs eight times 125 to equal 1,000. <laughs> okay? He needs 125 more women to surround him to reach his thousands. So he loved many foreign women. And they were from the nations that God told him not to do that. He must not intermarry with them. Uh, he turned his heart away from God. He worshipped idols. Okay? I mean, it's incredible. So Ashtoreth is the Syrian and Phoenician goddess of the moon, sexuality, sensual love, fertility. You had to offer human sacrifice, crops, animals, firstborn children. You're talking about human sacrifice. Molech required human sacrifice, among other things. Uh, 
national deity, the Ammonites. Chemosh, this was uh, the god of planets and stars and Venus and Mars, Saturn. Worship, again, with child sacrifice and burnt offerings. We've looked at this before. So here's a guy who had such a great beginning, and this is not a great end. What do you say? He started well as a servant of God, didn't finish well. We need to be in prayer for our families and for our lives. Regardless of how you started, we want to finish well, do we not? We want to make sure that we make use of the opportunities that God has given to us. We want to make sure that we're praying and guarding our hearts and lives so we can have a good story. At the end of the day, we don't have any exceptions to the clause. Are you with me? What, what a terrible ending this is. Unfortunately, the, the pressures of this materialism and this power and sexual immorality and success and wealth just eroded his devotion to God. Does that happen? It does happen. He just couldn't say no to anything. Did wealth solve his problems? No. Did sex solve his problems? No. He had everything. And yet, God was weaned out of his life. Who was ruling Israel? This was ruling Israel. Royal wives demanded to be treated in royal fashion. That's enough of that. Let's go this way. So I talked to you about Josephus. I meant to bring it with me today, but he was a general, historian, priest, Pharisee, living at the, just after the time of Christ during the destruction of the temple and wrote a history of the destruction of the eviction of Israel in AD 70. Okay? Anybody remember Josephus? So I went back and read what his take was on Solomon, and this is what Josephus says in Antiquities of the Jews, uh, 875. Okay? Book 8, Chapter 7, Section 5. It says, He grew mad in his love for women, laid no restraint on himself in his lusts, nor was he satisfied with the women of his country alone. He married many other wives out of foreign nations. There's a big list of them. He transgressed the laws of Moses, which for, forbade Jews to marry any of those that were not of their own people. He also began to worship their gods, which he did in order to gratify his wives out of his affection for them. He continues, Josephus continues, as Solomon fell headlong into unreasonable pleasures. Now, God is not adverse to pleasure, is he? Joy of the Lord is my strength. God created the world for us to enjoy, didn't he? These are unreasonable pleasures, right? Hedonistic, pathetic, perverted pleasures, all right? Enjoy as much as life as we possibly can. Enjoy everything that God has provided for us. Have as much pleasure as you possibly can in a legitimate and awesome way, right? Why not? It's God's world. He made it for us. Put us in a garden. Hey, it's all yours. Enjoy the garden, right? God didn't put them in the garden of Eden to punish them, did he? No, made a beautiful planet. Still has a lot of beauty in the planet. Still has a lot of great things that are legitimate pleasures that God intended for us. And the greatest pleasure you can possibly have in life is walking with God as you're doing that. He's not with God during this. He wouldn't regard any admonitions. He wouldn't even take his own advice, right? Go read your own book. Uh, he married 700 wives from the concubines, and soon what? He was governed by them. Who governed the king was all of this evil. And he came to imitate the practices. He was forced to give them his demonstration of kindness and live according to the laws of that country. Now, can you imagine? Solomon makes Jim Baker look like Snow White. He makes Jeffrey Epstein look like Mother Teresa. Now, nobody likes it when the chief representative of God's kingdom goes wrong, do we? No, we don't like it. Be assured that Solomon's behavior did not make God happy and that God's going to do something about it. All right? We can rest assured by that. Solomon's going to be in big trouble. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart turned away from God. Check this out, because this is important. God appeared to him twice, okay? Came to him personally. 
And although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. God did not write him off. God actually appeared to him three times. God sent prophets to him uh, that he should give up his idolatry. Solomon knew the word of God. Did Solomon need a vision to know that this sexual immorality was wrong? Did he need a vision from God that human sacrifice to pagan gods was wrong? No. He knows idolatry is wrong. But God says, since this is your attitude, you have not kept my covenant, you have not kept my decrees that I've commanded you, okay? I most certainly will tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. So, does his actions impact the nation? Does it impact the future of Israel? Will it impact the future of Israel forever? Does the, future, does the history of Israel impact the world at large? Think of this impact of sexual immorality. Okay? Think of this perversion. Not only is it going to impact his life and his children's life, but the nation and the world as we know it today has been adversely impacted because he refused to obey God. All right? What lesson can you learn from that? Hopefully learn that lesson. Hopefully. But he says, look, because I've made a covenant with David and because I made promises, I'm not going to do it in your lifetime. I'm going to tear it out of the hand of your son. And I'm not going to take the whole kingdom. I'm just going to give him one for the sake of Jerusalem. For the sake of Jerusalem. Solomon knew that he shouldn't worship demonic gods. He just refused to obey the word of God. God says, okay, are you going down a wrong road? You're going down a wrong road. That's a wrong decision. That's a wrong way to go. Come back. What does God want for him? God wants what's best for him. God wants what's best for his family. God wants what's best for his nation. God wants what's best for the world. But what did he say? No, he refused God. God's will was for him to walk in righteousness before him all the days of his life. That was God's will. Check it out. God's will is resistible. God's judgment is not resistible. God says, this is what I'm going to do as a result of your disobedience. This kingdom's going to be messed up. There's going to be a civil war. There's going to be a split. Ten kingdoms are going to go away from you. Yeah, you're going to keep your little Judah down here. But from this moment on, there's nothing but trouble. He goes, whoops. Oh, I thought I had another one in here. Uh, he says, if you walk before me in integrity and in righteousness, God says, I will establish your throne over Israel forever. Okay? As I promised David. We call it the Davidic covenant, promises that God made to David. Those are great, right? Do I have it anywhere? No? No? All right. Thought I did. I'll read it to you. The Lord said, I've heard your prayer, I've heard your plea. I'm going to do all those things. Now, if you walk before me in integrity of heart and uprightness as David did, I will establish your throne over Israel forever. Okay? That's great. That's one side, isn't it? Verse 5. 1 Kings 9. But if you or your sons turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, okay? But if, if you follow me, it's all good. If you don't, you go after gods and worship them, I will cut off Israel from the land. Is that pretty stiff? What does that mean? That means eviction. Cut off from the land. We will... Take Israel and remove it from the promised land. And then he says, I'll reject the temple. How serious is that? That's the center of their entire worship life. Okay? How important is it for the future of Israel and the future of the world that these, this leadership follows God? 
and does what God wants. And God wants everything good, doesn't he? Everything good. And then he says, people will say, what? why has God done this thing to this land and to this temple? Verse 8. And it says, because they have forsaken the Lord their God. That's why God brought all this disaster on them. All right? Extremely important to catch this. 1,000 years before Christ, God promised to evict Israel from the promised land and to reject the temple. Okay? God promised to revoke the covenant made with David over sustained disobedience. Okay, we want to be clear on that because when we move through Matthew's gospel, we're going to see a lot of this very same language that Jesus brings to Israel. All right? What you want to understand is that this balance between obedience and blessing is ancient. And God is under no obligation to bless you for disobedience. You can't do the wrong thing and expect the right thing to happen. Okay? Now, at this point, I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Israel begins a terminal story of corruption. Now, everybody knows there's repercussions, right? Everybody knows there's ramifications caused by this monstrous disobedience of Solomon. Now, his sin was not just, didn't just affect him, right? It affects everybody, even the small people in Israel at this time, the people that he was supposed to govern. He forgot he was a servant, and he became a fool. He wouldn't even answer to God. He wouldn't take any advice, wouldn't take any reproof, so he became a goof, you wouldn't, find Sol- you wouldn't find Solomon in the streets dancing before the Lord like David, would you? No. He went from servant king to slave to sin. And his actions, not only in his own life, but in his son's life, and the entire nation and all of human history. So when you lose the fear of the Lord, you no longer care about sin, and you make excuses for disobedience, Right? We see that God came and pleaded with Solomon at least three times. God begged him to change. God wanted him to repent. God didn't want to bring trouble on Israel. God wants to prevent it. God wants to protect them, do they not? When we put ourselves under God's protection, we're walking in obedience. Our family is blessed. Our families are protected. Are we not? From all trouble, it doesn't matter what happens outside. We're on the foundation. Let the whole foundations of the world be shaken We're on firm foundation, right? God wanted things to go well, but Solomon refused God's will over and over and over and over and over again. And God will deal with you for a certain period of time, but that time can run out. So the ten tribes in the north ceded from the union under Rehoboam, there's not one good king in that 10 northern uh, tribes. 722 B.C., Sennacherib of Assyria came in, conquered the 10 tribes, took them all captive and prisoners, moved all his people into the northern, northern key, uh, kingdom of Israel. They were evicted from the land. The temple that they worshipped in was destroyed. The southern kingdom limped along for another couple hundred years and was sent into exile as we read. What? Oh, don't have it. In Matthew 111, it says that we can write down the 111 right now. Uh, they went into exile to Babylon. So we'll look at that later. Okay? To be continued. I'm making it down there. God only wants what's good for us, doesn't he? How many know that? Why is it so hard to understand that? And God gave Solomon lots of time, didn't he? Lots of warning, lots of word, lots of time. It wasn't like Adam and Eve who had you know, one shot at the tree, right? 
God's not out there to squish anybody, condemn anybody. God's not out there to punish people. But when you get out from under God's umbrella and God's protection, it's like, what are you going to do? Going off a cliff, right? Before we get to this one here. Same way, Old Testament, New Testament. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever man sows, he will also reap. Doesn't matter if you're the king of Israel. If you sow to your flesh, you'll from that flesh, from that corrupt, you will reap corruption. If you sow to the spirit, you'll reap eternal life. So don't get tired of doing good. We'll reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Amen? Amen. We're going to write a good story. We're going to take every opportunity that God presents to us to continue to do great things. We're going to walk humbly before the Lord as humbly as we can. Uh, We want to guard our own hearts. We want to be as much of a blessing as we can to one another and to our generation. All in favor? Father, we just come before you right now. Lord, we're so sorry for this story. Lord, we don't want that to be our story. Lord, as much as we appreciate America and the prosperity that is available to us, that's not our goal in life, Lord. Our goal in life is to serve you and to make you known. Father, we want to be servants and not kings. We want to lead as a servant for you. And so, God, we come before you humbly today. We are in covenant relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, for more of your Holy Spirit. We pray for the joy of the Lord would be our strength. And God, if there's people that are here today or listening who have not come to you and prayed that prayer, create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit in me. That simple prayer is a life-changing prayer. That's a prayer that you can pray every day that brings us into the joy of the Lord and fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Let's just pray together, shall we? Lord, we just want to thank you right now for the example that you give us in Scripture as warnings. We thank you, Lord, for David who was able to acknowledge his sin, who was able to come before you and to pray, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Grant me a willing spirit, Lord. We pray that same prayer today. We pray, Lord, that we would have a new willingness to serve you, a renewal, a pure heart. Create in us a pure heart, O God. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Everybody said? All right.